You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Tell me, how did you end up in Hong Kong? Like, of all the places to go to school. Um, so, uh, yeah, I didn't actually decide to go to school here. Um, it, I came to Hong Kong because I met a Hong Kongese uh, girl in Denmark. Uh, she came to Denmark to study and uh, we, um, she became my girlfriend and then we lived together in Denmark for a number of years and uh, and then we just suddenly decided at a point uh, there was a point where we were both uh, unemployed at the same time so then we thought well now we might as well try to live in Hong Kong now so we moved here and that's like uh, five or six years ago oh wow and uh, well, so so then when I then when I came here uh, I just at first, I was just looking for jobs. Uh, I was looking for various jobs in, in, in environmental NGOs and that kind of thing, uh, or research that had to do with... Uh, I worked with uh, fisheries management research at, at one point, so I was trying to get into uh, f- fisheries research here in Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, and then so this was in 2016 this was uh, like a year after the CISO incident uh, Walter Palmer and uh, so I had been following that with with some interest and then I've always had an interest in in um, nature stuff and and uh, hunting I'm not a hunter myself but my my dad is a hunter and he's a biologist so I grew up uh, in I grew up with hunting and I grew up eating uh, deer and that kind of thing um, so this this combination it made me uh, very interested in this subject of, of trophy hunting oh cool so uh, so I had this I got this idea uh, that I wanted to write a, th- a thesis about a PhD thesis about the the ethics of trophy hunting uh, cool. and that's how I ended up in philosophy and so I actually it's not like I started out in philosophy and then decided oh now I need to find a philosoph- philosophical topic, uh, subject I started out with this idea for what I wanted to write about and and then that necessitated doing it in a philosophy department because it was oh. about ethics so, I see. Uh, oh okay yeah yeah ethics and yep yeah nope. so I started very uh, cool I started contacting some uh scholars here in Hong Kong uh, who work with uh, environmental ethics and uh, then I was lucky enough to find one who had faith in my uh, in my project idea and uh, and then I got started so wow wow well that's a cool story mm-hmm. how many what's the population in Hong Kong few thousand <laughs> what <laughs> thousand like like 25,000 people? <laughs> uh, it's about uh, 7 million people. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, no, I knew it was, uh, it, it was up there. It's a so big city, man. I, hmm. I, I live in a community that's, that's about 15,000, and it was like 15,000 when I was like 10 years old. Ah. And for me, it's like, it's a city. It's, oh, my God, it drives me crazy. There's hmm. cars, and you can't sometimes get out on the highway very easily because there's and I'm just like we live out in the country on six acres but close close to the town so mm. the 
the nearest I've ever been to big cities like that, um, Houston, Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth, LA, and Taipei. I see. And that's pretty weird for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the population of Hong Kong has around the same uh, population as uh, as Denmark, where I, I came from. Oh man! <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah, that's uh, well, good on good on you for living with mm. uh, with that, that many people. But actually, um, like like I was uh, telling Curtis uh, earlier, it's it's one thing that's nice about Hong Kong is that um, it's it's more green it's, it's still than most people think because the Hong Kong territory is like eighty uh, percent dense forest or something like that, and then oh, and wow. then where it is city, then it's mostly skyscrapers. So it's it's extremely compact living areas, but then you know, almost no matter where you are, you can always see a forested mountain or uh, the sea in the background. So, so that's that that's kind of nice actually. It's never you're never completely lost in big city. You can always very quickly get to the ocean or get get to a, a hilltop or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember the very first time I flew into L.A. at nighttime, and it's like. It just seemed to like cover half the state. Right. Yeah. 11 or 12 o'clock at night. And I'm like, man, why is there that many people on the freeway? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Like it, it's not compact. It's, it's like, yeah. Hong massive, Kong, I mean, so. for the, for oh, the in, entire like central uh, city where the majority of people live, you can get from, from one end of that to the other uh, with public transportation in like an hour or so. So in that oh, okay. way, it's, it's pretty dense. Um, one of the things I noticed when I was in Taipei is that pe because sort of the same thing, like um, small footprint, lots of people, you know, um, vertical yeah. um, buildings and stuff, people's um, perceptions of like scale and distance was very different from what I was used to in Canada. Like we would think nothing of it if you said uh, like, hey, you want to come up and get together and do this podcast? And it's like, sure, we'll drive like an hour and a half. That's nothing. We'll just mm. meet you up at, at your place. Where in the city, I remember one day where one of the host um, fathers had to drive one of my, my colleagues to this meeting point And he had to drive about five kilometers which was like way more than he ever has to drive and he was just like oh man this is so <laughs> far away it took so long why are you guys way over here and i'm like geez where i come from people will ride that in their bike in the morning like yeah two times my, a day so. my driveway is like five kilometers long <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh gr great life experiences now in your in your thesis um one of the things i read it was kind of towards the end is you, you were you were getting onto social media and you were starting to um facilitate and partake in some of these social media conversations about trophy hunting yeah. of which you documented that most of them go sideways real quick mm. that you said um that very quickly you started to get harassed during those conversations and it said i had only participated for a few months before someone wrote that they had contacted my university and complained about me yeah so i i, I want to start off with that because it's kind of like this seems to be really indicative of this bigger conversation we're going to have 
it's uh, it's highly volatile to, to, to people, right? So obviously you didn't get your degree revoked and kicked out of the university because of this one person, but... No, I, I, I actually ne I never heard about it from my university. I just saw on social media that, that that was what they had done, but I didn't hear anything about it on my end. So I guess they just reached some administrator who thought, what the hell is this? And hung up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, um, yeah, that, that's, that's definitely indicative of, um, of, of your whole topic. Um, now, the other thing I want to ask you is like, because I find this super fascinating, like we, we've, we've been on this journey of doing podcasts about uh, conservation and science and, and hunting and stuff. And, you know, lots of scientists or researchers in wildlife. And like you said, your father's biologist and hunter and stuff. And but we've had an, an economist on the show. And now we have a philosopher. So yeah, uh, I just kind of want to ask you a few things about this. So about being in the discipline of philosophy and the first part of it have you ever seen one of those memes where it's like there's a picture and it says this is what i imagine myself doing as an environmental philosopher and then a picture of of somebody and says this is what my friends and family think i do as an environmental philosopher and then the picture that says this is what i actually do as an environmental philosopher like what what would that look like for uh, an environmental philosopher? Like, what did you think you were going to do? What What does all of your friends think you do, but what do you really do? I know the meme, but I haven't seen it for environmental <laughs> philosophy. Um, no, we're, we're making it up right, right here. Right, right. Oh, you're okay. creating it. You got to visually paint this for us. <laughs> Actually, I don't really consider, I consider myself, I, I don't consider myself a uh, philosopher. I mean, so... Uh, like I said, I started out with this idea of writing about the ethics of trophy hunting. But as you can see from my thesis, it expanded out to something much, much broader than that. Um, because once I got started uh, on this thesis after a, re a year or so of doing research, I decided that just that there was a lack of uh, of literature that was dealing with trophy hunting in a comprehensive way. Um, I, I saw that, basically I saw that what was missing was not dealing with any uh, particular aspect of trophy hunting, What because the, you have the conservationists writing their uh, science articles about population management and this kind of thing, and then you have some scholars writing about uh, uh, the history of hunting and then you have some scholars mm -hmm. writing about uh, the psychology of trophy hunters and you have some trying to write about what motivates hunters doing research on this so there was a lot of research about trophy hunting in disparate areas but what i didn't see anywhere was like a trophy hunting textbook um uh. so i changed my direction from just being about the ethics of trophy hunting to actually uh, I wanted to do something more ambitious, so that's that's how I decided to. All right, I'm I'm just I'm just going to write about everything related to trophy hunting. So that's why I have uh, you. I don't know if you're familiar with the general length of PhD theses, but oh, yeah. uh, but mine is unusually long. Like it's like a, a 500 pages or so, uh, 180,000 words. 
Yeah. And that's why I'm basically cramming an entire textbook in, into into this uh, PhD thesis, where I have one chapter where I write about uh, the history of hunting. And I have one chapter where I write about uh, what what are the trophies, what what do the trophies mean, what what is taxidermy, uh, what are the other kind of hunting trophies, and uh, what do trophy record books mean. And then I have a chapter about the hunters, who are the hunters, who, uh, what are the demographics of hunters, what motivates hunters, uh, who are anti-hunters, what what motivates anti-hunters, and and then I have the regulations that govern trophy hunting and the conservation aspects and and then these and then also of course uh, the the philosophical aspect like the morality and ethics of trophy hunting yeah. so so my 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 philosophy the philosophy part of my phd thesis is maybe uh, it's less than 20 percent of, of uh, so so mostly i just consider myself a very interdisciplinary uh conservation and hunting scholar i would say okay okay because, because it's like partly uh, sociology partly cultural studies partly economics partly history it's a lot of different things in my thesis oh oh it is it is a lot of different things so yeah. um no, that's that's a cool cool way to explain it. I uh, yeah. I, I really grasp and appreciate that. I think, um, yeah, I think if you went around and said you were a philosopher, that to me that meme would be everybody would think that you're like the famous um, thinker. Was it Michelangelo sculpture? You know, the guy yeah, sitting yeah. on the rock and he's got yeah. his yeah. chin, and, and they'd be like, oh, that's a philosopher. He sits <laughs> around like. And, and and contemplates <laughs> yeah. you know things in the universe and yeah. the grand place of of everything and then the the reality would be is you're on twitter dealing with all this, <laughs> <laughs> these debates that go sideways about trophy hunting so yeah. that would be uh, that'd be the reality so um but no that's uh um Super i read cool. your thesis um it is big and i want to say it it reads like a book yeah like and like it could be a book like with a cover and bound and everything it it um, it, it and, will and be I, a book yeah okay, and, and i have that's from the amazing beginning, from the beginning i have never thought about uh really i'm oh i'm writing a phd thesis in my head for the whole time i've been writing this thesis i've been writing a book so uh, okay. i wanted to mm. write Basically, I wanted to write a textbook that I could also be allowed to defend as a PhD thesis. And I was lucky enough that my supervisor would allow me to do this. And I got examiners who thought that this was a great idea. So it all worked out very well. And wow. and, and the process now is uh, is turning my uh, is, is turning the thesis into a book, which is not going to be that much work because that's how I wrote it to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no, it um that that'll it'll make an amazing reference book for pe people all over the world, and uh, I look forward to having it uh, on on my bookcase one day. So I hope um, so. Thank good, you. Good, good, good for you. Um, I've read other theses, and then you know you get into the, you know the methodology section, and then the results section, and then you mm. see a bunch of statistics and math, and my eyes glaze over. And you flip to the end to say, well, what's where's the discussion and the conclusion, right? Mm. So, um, but I, I I love what you did, um, like like the book format because um, 
you can read it. You can pick it up, read a couple chapters, put it back down, pick it up again, and and yeah. it reads like a textbook, like a story, like it. Good job. I, Good for uh, yeah, you. Yeah, and I was trying to read something that could also be read by uh, in basically any layman with an interest in the subject. Yeah. Mm. Yep. No. Good job. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the conversation. This is Mark Hall, your host, and I am Curtis Hall, your co-host. This episode of the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranberg, BC. Alpine Toyota is fully stocked with parts and service center for all makes and models of vehicles. They're well known for their off-road outfitted Tacoma 4x4s. They have seven service bays and a team of licensed technicians. They sell tires for all makes and models, including off-road and winter tires. And the customers and staff are huge outdoor adventurers like us. And I know that Alpine Toyota is also a huge supporter of Ducks Unlimited Canada, which is really cool to see a business like that being involved in a conservation organization such as Ducks Unlimited. So, Oh, absolutely. I remember a couple, s- couple summers ago, we uh, were helping out with the Ducks and Trucks fundraising event in in cranbrook and toyota uh, alpine toyota was the big sponsor for that we they had the dealership open late on the saturday night and barbecues and kids stuff and raffles and conservation officer service was there with the uh the invasive species uh um, the canine dog the canine unit sniffs and out stuff and sniffs out the invasive muscles and on boats yeah and that, that was a great time and that was all hosted at the alpine toyota dealership in cranbrook because they just just love supporting um ducks unlimited and people in the community that love the outdoors so thanks alpine um so we are joined in this episode by dr nikolai bichel how, how are you doing how are you nice thank you for inviting me so so uh or it's 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 our pleasure um so before folks before we were doing this we were kind of um you know doing our basic checks and all this kind of stuff before we do the podcast and it was kind of like what's that kind of like humming noise in the background and stuff and so we were trying to trying to figure it out and finally nikolai says it's because i'm in hong (laughs) kong so (laughs) if if you hear a bit of it that's hong kong folks so it is, uh, from what I understand, um, there is no difference between night and day as far as the busyness of that city goes. And so there you, there you go. So as, as you can tell, um, Nikolai did his PhD uh, in trophy hunting. It's actually called, um, the title is Comprehending Trophy Hunting, Hunting, Hunters, Trophies, and Antis. So like not your relative aunties, but anti hunters. So, um, as we said, it reads like a book. Um, it's, it's great. I loved it. And I learned so much. Like I loved, I loved the section on the history of hunting. You were all the way back into like the Greeks and the Romans and hunting and 
kind of how it was um, elite and the aristocracy and the, you know the emperors and all this sort of stuff that are doing the hunting in these big enclosed hunting preserves that were like thousands of years ago yeah. and and I was just like whoa man I never <laughs> heard of that stuff before and um, wow that was the the history part um, the history section and the whole um, section towards the end on the morality of trophy hunting those those are my two favorite parts the oh, beginning and the end I, I, I love those sections so um, let's jump into your thesis and and learn about like this whole whole topic from a from an ethical kind of perspective historical economical and uh, I thought maybe we'd kick off to kind of talk about trophy hunting mm. and what what is trophy hunting what is the definition of trophy hunting i've personally talked about this on things before seems to be that everybody has their own definition and tell us tell us what you were talking yeah I, w I would say that i think there are two main ways of uh, defining trophy hunting and one is where you try to guess at what the motivations are uh, for hunting and uh, I think that this is the one that is used by uh, it's it's used in the popular media. It's used on on social media, where where you see these uh, photos, the stereotypical photo hunting photos of someone having hunted in Africa, and then you see the trophy photo, and then you make the assumption that uh, the trophy must be a prime motivating factor here, and then you call it trophy hunting. And uh, I think it is, I mean, this is a very inaccurate uh, way of defining it because it, it, is, it assumes that you know what motivates hunters. I mean, first of all, you would have to ask hunters, uh, you would have to have to ask hunters what mm -hmm. motivate them. And then you, uh, assuming that they are completely truthful about it, which they may not be, because if they really were uh, motivated by a trophy, then a, a lot of hunters probably wouldn't admit it. Um, but then mostly it's, it's a difficult way of defining it because hunters have, as you know, lots of different motivations for hunting. I mean, there's the trophy, maybe a, a very small part of it that you would love to have this uh, memory and this decoration on your walls. And uh, then there's the meat, of course, which is uh, often a prime motivator. And then there's the whole nature experience, just being outside in nature, ex experiencing everything about nature in a in a more intense way than than if you're just hiking. And uh, and then there's uh, the social aspects of hunting. Sometimes that, that that some are motivated by. I mean, some go hunting purely for the social uh, aspects. I mean, we, know some stories about hunters going hunting with with uh, with a gun but no ammunition for the gun because the only reason that they really go out there is that their hunting is just a facade in order to have the, the social interactions with with other hunters and <laughs> um, so uh, motivations are complicated so i think that the better way of uh, or maybe not the better way but the way that i talked about trophy hunting in my thesis is is simply that anyone who uh, keeps a trophy from their hunt is uh, is is someone that I describe in my thesis or discuss in my thesis as a trophy hunter, and this will sit wrongly with a lot of people because it will or a lot of hunters because it will 
label a lot of hunters as trophy hunters who don't consider themselves trophy hunters and who who I don't consider trophy hunters in the stereotypical sense because I know that the trophy is not a prime motivator for their hunting. Like I know that, uh, m I mean, my dad who has been in uh, working as a biologist and as a nature conservationist his whole life and has hunted deer his whole life and he he has uh, antlers on his walls uh, in in of my childhood homes so and those are i consider those hunting trophies so is he a trophy hunter i mean he would not consider himself a trophy hunter but he has hunting trophies um so uh, because i wanted to write a very comprehensive thesis where i uh, and, and book where i don't discuss just the trophy hunter stereotype i had to include all manners of keeping a trophy uh, and all and and describe and and simply cover all of it under the guise of, of trophy hunting so so my definition yeah. uh, the one that i uh, operationalize is uh, is that anyone who keeps uh, a hunting trophy is a trophy hunter yeah and you you kind of qualified that a little bit by by saying that like you kept like a part of the yeah. animal for the purpose of displaying it mm. um was an element of defining um the trophy is, is is that you're putting it up like to either look at or for others to see uh seemed to be an important part of um how how you defined that and then you also talked a little bit about um we can probably get into this a little bit later but kind of about um collections mm. And the antlers on the walls were part of a collection. They were filling a series, a gap, uh, um, some sort of a checklist um, versus a hunter like me that may have like got an animal for meat and I kept the antlers like your dad put them yeah. on the wall. Um, you were talking about those were more like as a, as a souvenir. Yeah, well, I... Like as a level of a trophy, but like a souvenir because it's like I wasn't um motivated by that i wasn't um trying to go like oh this is number 10 or this completes mm. the set or some something like that so so i thought that yeah, was. i think the element of uh, what i call uh, either a souvenir or a memento is uh, that that is a that that is what i kind of consider one of the defining aspects of the hunting trophy so i would say that i think that the hunting trophy is two things i think that the hunting trophy is one that it it needs to have a memento or souvenir quality uh, and not a utility quality. So what I mean by that is that uh, anything that you keep from an animal that you that you shoot, which has clear utility for obviously the meat, I, I wouldn't consider any meat uh, trophy because that has the utility of eating it. That's the purpose uh, of, of the meat of an animal. And there may be some other parts of various animals that you utilize in different ways. Um, the trophy, the, the utility of the trophy is its utility as memento. It is, it is a memory of that hunt. And that is one of the defining aspects of the hunting trophy as compared to other things that you may gain from, uh, from an animal. Right, right. No, I know I, uh, I, I get that. I think that was that was laid out well and you know just because you said like pe people will start to get their kind of their their hackles raised about this kind of thing um the the way you talk about uh in fact i'll just back up the way you talk about all of these subjects in your thesis it's like you're not judgmental you, like you 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 were sort of like 
this is kind of how I see it. This is what it is. This is this side. This is this is that side. It's just like you're putting it out there um, as facts and information and a compilation of all of these things and these ideas. And it's kind of like you almost have to like, in a lot of ways, make up your own mind with with what you've written. So you've said if you know if if I keep a set of antlers um, as a memento as a souvenir, um, I'm eating the meat that's utilitarian that's not the trophy part but i'm keeping these antlers for a long period mm. of time uh more in the aspect of that it's a souvenir um and but you would still call that like quote unquote souvenir like that's a trophy that's the trophy off the mm. animal but you're not saying like that that's bad that's it just is what no, it is no, not that's, a, not a, that thing is a trophy mm-hmm. i'm not a bad person because my deer's in the freezer and the antlers are you know on on the wall you're just saying like i i need to define these things in order to explore this this whole topic so mm. um yeah just just for for folks like it's like he he's nikolai is really good at that of just kind of like laying stuff out when he gets into talking about the morality of and the behavior of hunters and any hunters it's kind of like you know it's like he does a really good balanced job you know so it's well i wouldn't say i'm um, not i mean there are definitely parts in my thesis where i show some true colors but i but i think that i'm trying i think i'm trying to be uh, judgmental to both sides i mean i'm I'm very critical of uh, some anti-hunters and some animal rights activists and that those sorts of people. But uh, on the other side, I'm also very critical of some aspects of the trophy, uh, trophy collecting culture and record books and like uh, Safari Club International and that whole, that whole side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I, and I think that's, um, that's very real and you're very honest about that, but you're, you're, uh, you're you're hmm. equal it's kind of like you you know you just call it as it is on yeah both sides if, and, and i think if, i think that, that i think that's an if you can thing. if you can manage to get the like uh, death threats from from both sides then i think that's a quality of criteria of success <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 you know you know you're hitting yeah. the truth down the middle so um now kind of getting in uh sort of a little bit more about um you know just like trophy itself you know like what is what is the trophy and so like when you said you if if the parts are have a utility to it that wouldn't be considered a trophy so like the fur off of a bear if it it goes on the wall then that display purposes and memento makes it a trophy but if i make a coat out of it you know that becomes utilitarian or or a hat or a pair of mitts to go fishing in the wintertime, like whatever that... There, there's that a different? complicated distinction there. Um, I think one useful uh, way to illustrate this distinction is uh, with uh, the elephant's foot. So uh, the, the foot of an elephant uh, in the early <laughs> 1900s yeah. was sometimes made uh, into a uh, waste paper basket. And yeah. so... Or yeah, or an, exactly, or an umbrella stand. So... I would still consider that a trophy. Um, I mean, although you, you, I mean, you can argue that oh, it has utility as a waste paper basket or a uh, or an umbrella stand, but if you need a waste paper basket, you'll go and pay five dollars for a waste paper basket. You will not 
go, oh, I better go shoot an elephant because I need a waste, one of its feet for a waste paper <laughs> basket. So, I mean, yeah, cl no. clearly yeah. the prime function of the elephant's foot uh, turned into a waste paper basket is a trophy. It is, I mean, any, anything could have been a waste paper basket. So that is like a, that is like a it's fake utility of some kind. And yeah, it's not, okay. a, no, it's not I, essential I, to it, your it, survival. It's, it's not. And, and so, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's that that falls into the category of like a novel. It's exactly, item. and uh, and then which, there's there, there's like yeah. a, a there's not a clear distinction. I mean, the the bear the bear coat it can it can go both ways. You can, I mean, that one I would probably not call it a a, a trophy, but then you have like a, if you for example turn uh, antlers into a knife handle, um, that in a way is just like a very. Uh, um, a very beautiful way of displaying a trophy, I might say, because and, and wood would have been just as good as a knife handle. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That 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 is definitely of. Uh, but it, it's a yeah, judgment call. Yeah, getting getting that gets yeah. into some gray areas. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, you know the utility aspect of the parts becomes. Uh, I think there's also like a time boundness to it as well, right? Like there was, there was a point where it was like, you know, the utility aspect of the other parts of the animal was because people didn't have other resources. Yeah. You know, like Inuit, Inuit hunters in the Arctic would use like whale bones and different things for the structures of their, of their exactly, homes, yeah. you know, and caribou skins on them because, you know, it's, you know, it, there were no trees, like they couldn't go get some, you know, some boards to do it. And if it was a knife handle, mm. if it was a spear point from a bone, um, that was the true utility aspects of it. And, and I guess we have alternatives to those mm. now. Um, so I guess if we are using parts for fur for a blanket, for mitts, for a hat, an antler for a knife handle or whatever, like I can appreciate that that's still sort of you know using it in a display purpose way um but slightly yeah. different because okay. you know if it's a something functional display purpose keeping you yeah exactly so um see how quickly this kind of gets like nebulous <laughs> and 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 weird this topic um now Another thing I really thought was cool from your history section is um, the origins of the word trophy. Oh, yeah. So came from mm. Greek, Greek language. How's that pronounced? Tropion? I actually don't know how to tropion? pronounce it. Tropion? Yeah. So it's like tropion. Um, so the trophy comes from Greek tropion. <laughs> we'll call it that. Which means of defeat yeah. like defeat as in like conquered over yeah like yeah battle. exactly i mean it, yeah. it it was it the, the trophy so was like, for war purposes yeah originally okay okay wow hmm. so that's where it came from in in greek language was was trophy relating yeah. to defeat as in a, in a war yeah, so it was a, okay. it was a the tropion was a name for this um in the in the early uh, Greek uh, wars, it, it was uh, you would 
you would decorate a tree uh, on a battlefield with uh, the armor of your slain uh, enemy. If you if you had won a battle, then you would gather some of their armor and then decorate a tree, and then that tree would be called a tropion. It would be a symbol of uh, the defeat of that uh, army, and then it would it would and then it would actually. What's funny is that it would be allowed to stand. The opposing army would not come and tear it down because it would be a tribute to the gods. So, uh, so they would not, they would, they wouldn't dare defy the gods by destroying a tropion. So once you erected, erected it, it would, it would stay there, and and then, um, wow. and then later hmm. these tropions they became more, um, they became more permanent monu- monuments. Like uh, then you would re- build an actual statue in in the city to commemorate your victories over um, other Greek city states. Yeah. Wow. No, I found that fascinating. I mean, pe- people might think, well, it's sort of like, you know, meanings and, um, you know, cultural context of things like they change over the millennia, which they do, um, you know, those meanings evolve. But then sometimes, you know, the root of something like trophy is it got applied to hunting and where it originated, <clears throat> like you just explained, somehow kind of stays embedded in the psyche of homo sapiens and somehow there's a little tiny aspect of that creeps out you know even thousands of years years later i mean some of the same symbology i guess from from what you were just explaining to 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 the trophy nowadays might might still still kind of be there in the background so that that was Mm. interesting um now you talked about from the aspect of like trophies and trophy hunting you you differentiated between this notion i mentioned earlier of collectors and non-collectors maybe kind of talk a little bit about that in the context of (coughs) trophy hunting well i think that um yeah i think that uh, collecting has a way of um it, uh, it has an influence on, uh, in my view, on interactions with nature that is not always a positive one, because I think once your uh, way of uh, experiencing nature uh, turns into a uh, an idea of, um, of collecting some kind of ticks, like tick marks uh, of things that you've experienced, then then you uh, cut yourself mm. off from from experiencing like new or yeah, it's like you cut yourself off from a genuine way of of uh, immersing yourself in, in in natural experiences, and I think so. The way that yeah. I consider trophy yeah, collections is that yeah, if you if you go out hunting and you and you just sh- shoot whatever you see that is legal and you have opportunity to to shoot, um, then you're not then you're not a collector. But it's also clear that um, that for some of those uh, more some of those trophy hunters that fit the stereotype of the trophy hunter, who try to collect. Um, the Safari Club International's World Hunting Awards is a uh, is a good example mm. of the collecting mentality, of course, um, because these hunting clubs award awards award you um, 
levels of uh, different levels of awards based on where you've hunted and how many uh, different species of animals that you've shot in how many different countries. So, so yeah. in, if you are if you are hunting with uh, this kind of award in mind, or you care about these awards, then you are kind of uh, then you, you've then you've turned from just just being a hunter into kind of being a hunter collector because you you're not interested in interested in just the experience of hunting. You're interested in, in the experience of hunting something uh, novel every time and and collecting these uh, tick marks that you need for for some kind of award so it it's kind of like the 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 motive like and this comes back to motive is is what people seem to be uh uh triggers people like in the in the sense of a trophy collector like the collection you know completing a collection or something um the motive is the attainment of a complete collection <clears throat> as opposed to the experience of the hunt um you know the place uh you know you know all of those sorts of things it it's it, it it's the collection itself that maybe is the most important thing in the accolades that go with a complete collection versus um like you said, sort of the the hunt experience, the connection to hmm. nature. Let, let me just uh, yeah. can I try to just give me one moment. There's a really good um, sure. quote that I want to find about collecting. Oh, I remember you had you had that in uh, in your thesis. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, 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 so well, this he... is a this is in a book by Ted Karasot. He is uh, interviewing a uh, hunter uh, named Robert Kubik, um, and he is uh, so Ted Karasot is being shown around in the trophy room of uh, of uh, Robert Kubik. This this one. Yeah. Right exactly. Here? Yeah. Very good book. Ted blood. Yeah. Ted Karasot. Uh, blood ties. Nature. Culture. And uh, so. Robert Kubik says to, to Ted here, um, when, when you have taken as many big game animals as they have, as I have, some of these trips are not hunts, they're collecting. For instance, if you're going to hunt a buntabok, you'll find them in only three places on South Africa, on ranches. And I've taken one, walking, but they're about as wild as these tame reindeer. It was brutal, but I wanted a complete collection, not from an ego standpoint, but to have most of the animals of the world. So I shot it. <laughs> I think that, that that's I mean, a that's... very uh, clear message from a trophy hunter that has that has turned into a collector. A, a collector. Now, you can ex there's something about I don't know if it's a disorder or, or what. There are people that are obsessed with collections, yes. whether it's. Um, God, when I was a kid, it used to be these these things, uh, these little tiny miniature like sugar spoons for tea, and they had like a little emblem on the top of it. So if you went to Hong Kong, you would get like a Hong Kong spoon, and then if you went to Tokyo, you got a Tokyo spoon, and if you went to Banff National Park, you got a Banff. Like, and people were just obsessed with collecting these things, and they had big racks mm. on the wall. Um, like, th there's this phenomenon about like in the human psyche about collections and and having complete ones so the the biggest one that comes to mind like what do you guys think about this is 
bird exactly, walkers. Exactly, yeah. That has been mm, all the rage these last few days be... on Twitter. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, they seem to be driven by this this same thing of what you just quoted there, of of like the the checklist. Um, they don't. They're not killing it and putting it on their wall, but they visually have to see it, and it and it's this, like they'll travel to the other side of the world and, you know, and risk malaria and all this kind of stuff just for a glimpse, and they're like, aha, and it's like, hmm. yeah, it's 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 it almost like you could have, of, you could have a bird that they've already seen before, could be doing something extraordinary, just doing nature stuff, being really cool. And someone could be like, oh, man, look at that osprey. He's, like, hovering. He's going to catch a fish. And the bird watch could be like, I don't give a shit. I've already seen an osprey. I'm looking for <laughs> a red-tailed hawk. <laughs> like, I don't care about – even though he's doing something mm. cool, he, they're not going to stop and watch him do something cool because they want that check mark beside the other one, right? Like, mm. that's that's kind of what you were saying. Like, that's how now I've, I've thought about that as the, the hunter-collectors. It's like they're not going to stop and look at, you know – a um like a marmot or something cool boogieing around in the alpine or you know a, a bird flying around gathering seeds they're going to be like yeah, that yeah. has nothing to do with me getting another check yeah. mark yeah, exactly book, right? i think like, i think the collecting just, mentality yeah. can it can narrow your uh, focus too much so that you leave yourself blind to to other uh, precious experiences so i, I guess one of the questions here would be if what the person's doing is legal um, and they're collecting and they get pleasure and it makes them happy, um, why should we care? Why should anybody care what... And this is a small percentage of the world hunting community that's that obsessed with completing these collections. Like, I guess why would that matter seems to matter to a lot of people because it rubs a lot of people the wrong yeah. way i um, mean maybe that's uh maybe it should matter a little bit to us exactly because it matters to a lot of uh, people i mean you've talked about the the social uh, license to to hunt uh, before yeah. i mean it it yeah the more of of this i mean even though it's even though it's few hunters percentage wise who really care about uh, SCI hunting awards and this kind of thing it uh, it it just it's not a very good look for uh, non hunters I think I mean uh, it looks bad to a lot of people and and I think you know to see it from the other side it's like bird watchers are not hurting the birds um, however that can be a source of debate and it was in the last week on twitter um you know where they show this huge yeah. crowd of people like in this field beside these little shrubs like big <clears throat> cameras and telescopes and spotting scopes and there's like a hundred of them and they're all waiting for a glimpse of this one little mm. bird and it's like people are like oh my god this poor little bird right like it's like at what point does that become you know um something that's detrimental to nature but um People don't people don't seem to see that, but they see the act of like this collector like literally took the lives of these things so he could yeah. have this complete collection and and 
I can understand that. That's going to rub people the wrong yeah, way. There's I mean, no doubt people, about people it. People think that motivations are motivations are one of the most important thing to people in in in, in terms of how accepting they are of hunting and and hunting for the meat is very very acceptable. Uh, hunting hunting for completing a collection is not very acceptable to a, a very many people yeah mm -hmm. and and when you in your thesis when you talked about like differentiating between this collection um motive versus non-collectors um the 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 non-collectors like my you know myself like we talked earlier it's like i've got some antlers on mm -hmm. the wall and like technically you're saying that's a trophy it's on display and it's like okay like that's great um but uh, but you're sort of putting the collector and the non-collector in sort of two different categories and kind of saying like you know if you're the non-collector it's like it's fine you've got these things um, but they're just sort of this random, disorganized collection of things over your lifetime, like you were saying with your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a different um, psychology, a different motivation for what's driving you to be out there and ultimately taking an animal's life is 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 uh, is is the non-collector. These trophies, antlers, and whatnot are byproducts of the hunt, as opposed to. Um, so you, you did a good job, I think, of kind of allowing people to see themselves um, in 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 your discussion. Yeah, I kind of uh, in the same way that I make some distinction between uh, a, a hunter uh, who just a hunter who, who just keeps trophies and then a hunter who collects trophies. I also make a distinction between a uh, collection of trophies and actual what you call a collection. And then just an assembly of trophies. I don't know what the exact. I can't remember what the exact word I used was, but maybe it was an. Yeah, no, you you you, you did have a good word, and it was this kind of like yeah, so it was sort of like over your lifetime you've yeah. got all these things, but it was it, it's it just was, uh, it was it was by default. Yeah, and and each you weren't des each, by design. Each each tro when it's not a collection, then each trophy just has its value on its own on its own merit the value that that trophy has as as your memory but when you have a collection then each of them has a value but they also each That's, have yeah. a value as part of a collection and the ones that uh, you don't have yet if you are whatever criteria you're collecting for if it's uh, different age groups or different uh, uh, sizes or from different countries or different species or whatever you will when it's a collection then you will have missing pieces and those missing pieces also have value not not as much as uh, individual trophies and individual animals but as missing pieces in that collection and and i think that is also kind of a, ethically that's also a a, a questionable um point of development be because then you are not really valuing the animal for that animal you are valuing the 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 animal more just for uh for being a missing piece in a Comple collection completing, completing a collection, a collection yeah. yeah yeah i can't remember if it was on one of your twitter threads but you'd kind of mention like 
this exact same thing happens in the insect world where people do this with butterflies. They travel all over the world, they catch them, they got these big collections. Um, they're killing them, um, drying them, put them on, on displays, and they're trying to get all the world's butterflies, or this is the collection from, you know, this continent or that continent or whatever. And, and it, but, but I, I recall you kind of saying like, but nobody sort of looks at that as like hunting, you know, collecting bugs. Mm um and it doesn't seem to catch oh no no this is like the this flat. was in uh, regard to uh, poaching uh, that was someone was uh someone was asking what uh, poaching is and then they were making some rather simplistic uh comment that poaching is is just uh poaching is just uh, hunting for subsistence or something like that it was some some kind of de definition okay, that didn't I, work and then i was t telling them just well poaching is just a word for uh, for illegal hunting and it doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, the species that we uh, consider hunting prey like uh, killing uh, killing butterflies illegally can, uh, is is for example also uh, huh. a okay. butterfly okay, poachers yeah. <laughs> butterfly poachers yeah i mean <laughs> it, it happens right yeah rare tropical fish um so kind of like moving on a little bit um you got a chapter in your book on the history and attitudes towards hunting um <clears throat> this this interest in this concept of trophy like in in the concept like or in in the arena of hunting or whatever Maybe maybe explain a little bit about kind of the the history and the roots of of that, you know, and in a in a nutshell. I mean, you kind of go, you kind of like I said, you go back into the, you know, the the ancient mm. worlds, um, and you you talked about um, this is one of the things I really found fascinating was kind of how hunting and the and and trophy that came with it was sort of like it had this close connection to training for war um the training for war is uh is not really con connected to the trophy i would say the training for war is just a general uh connection with what we call sport hunting um as opposed okay. to hunting for for meat um like like i um like I describe in, in in the thesis when I when I write about ancient Greek, Greece, uh, the, yeah, then uh, hunting was used uh, as the citizens of, of Greece, which means uh, so those who those the upper class who owned slaves, uh, they they would hunt uh, with uh, on on horseback or with hounds, and then with certain prescribed uh, weapons. And there were there were very clear rules about for uh, for uh, how they were allowed to to hunt. I mean, there was a sportsman's code already back then, but the purpose back then was uh, that that hunting was uh, war training, and uh, and this was said this was distinguished very clearly uh, as far back as uh, Plato writing uh, writing about this from from the uh, subsistence hunting. Uh, who would uh, subsistence hunters would, for example, hunt with uh, nets, which was unacceptable for the for the Greek citizen uh, who 
right right because it, it wasn't a sport sporting yeah, way to exactly it's too easy so it's you not proper to... training for for yeah. war and and this uh, this connection between uh, hunting and uh, and war is goes up all the way through history um the romans also mm-hmm. uh, when they were uh, abroad they would uh, they would kill wildlife as uh, as war practice and uh, and in the uh, in in the middle middle ages in in uh, europe you would have um, warfare against uh, the wildlife of uh, your enemies as proxies for actual war because actual war where you kill the enemy's soldiers is very very costly for both sides of course so you would instead invade their territory <clears throat> and and then the, in a real war the deer the deer shoot back. <laughs> yeah and then you would <laughs> and then you would simply uh, i mean you would dress up for war but then you would go to war against their wildlife instead and enter their territory and then kill their wildlife and then leave again so it was like a, a way of doing <laughs> play war with the pretty serious consequences for for wildlife Right. I, I do remember you talking about that where it was it was a, a way of making like a military strike against a against an enemy empire or whatever, which was to actually go into their territory and kill mm-hmm. their wildlife. Um that that was this, some of the historical uh stuff there. I that that was that was pretty fascinating. And and I saw an interesting parallel that you talked about. Um this kind of a little um and one of the things I loved about your thesis is it, it, it does have this broader history of hunting, um, economics, ethics, like all, all these things is not just this topic of trophy hunting. It's, it's much more broad. Um, but it was, it was really interesting when you were talking about this, this period and these cultures that were using um, hunting of animals as kind of this platform for, for war training is the more difficult it was to go do the hunt you know like you 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 went out into the land you went out of the mountains you had bare minimum supplies um you 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 camped on the mountain you endured the elements um you had to stalk and sneak and all these things that was more prized from a hunting military training Mm -hmm. aspect than just going and doing it the easy way that maybe some of the the high-ranking social people would do it, and it's sort of like, oh, it's in a pan, it's not going to get away. They're on a horse, the hounds have warred out, and like you know, they shoot it and they get they get their trophy, and and it kind of made me sort of look at like modern day hunting and how these backcountry hunts and 14-day backpacking trips and being kilometers, like 50 kilometers back in the mountains and all this kind of stuff is is seen as a more um, elite or kind of prestigious or higher level of hunting because of the difficulty associated with it. And hmm. I kind of found that interesting that, that that psyche about hunting being difficult as opposed to just doing it the quick and easiest way kind of ties back to when hunting played a role in training soldiers it was yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. and and in in more yeah. recent conservation history of course theodore roosevelt was also a, a strong advocate for for hunting's positive effect on what he called the uh, rugged manliness yeah <laughs> it's much the same <laughs> yeah. yeah 
Now it's called toxic. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, maybe maybe fill us in a little bit more, kind of like maybe the more modern concept of trophy and trophy hunting, kind of like how that manifested itself. Yeah, the in the, the trophy society. well the trophy history I would say also goes back very far. You you have uh, archaeologists have uh, have found. Um, Back from uh, up to 55,000 years ago, uh, you have found uh, burial sites that are decorated or littered with, with all kinds of animal uh, bones and uh, skulls and teeth and, and uh, ivory and these kind of things and often decorated, uh, carved in different ways. So it was, it was very, it's very clear that even back in Paleolithic times, uh, uh animal remains uh, remains from hunted animals well probably both hunted and scavenged animals were used as as uh, decorations and then uh, you have uh, and and antlers as well back then and then you have like uh, i think to my knowledge the first actual uh, hunting trophy which very which is much like uh, the very similar to the recent days, uh, to the modern half skull mount, or what you call the European mount, uh, has been ha yeah, has been found mounts, yeah. uh, on a uh, on a wall of a house in uh, Croatia from uh, six thousand five hundred years ago. There was a, a pair of uh, a European wow. a European mount uh, of antlers hanging on a wall. <laughs> Holy crap! Yeah. Wow. So. <laughs> So that's like the ancient uh, history of the hunting trophy. And I also made a tweet about this at some point, like to, to anyone who says that trophy hunting or the hunting trophies are just a modern phenomenon. That's, that's not really true. It has a very long history. Yeah, so the more, the more recent this... history is, uh, is back to the, uh, let, let me see, what was the exact uh, year? Uh, I would, I would characterize the beginning, the, the beginning of the modern history of the hunting trophy is in 1892, I would say, because that's the publication year of the first uh, trophy uh, book by Roland Ward. Uh, Roland yeah, Ward, Horn yeah. measurements and yeah. weights of the great game of the world being a record for the use of sportsmen and naturalists. A very long, very long title that was just later the Roland Ward's records of a big game. Um, so that's mm -hmm. that's when Roland Ward is a taxidermist and a naturalist and stuff, and then he wanted to catalog yeah. um, the great game of the world that that hunters brought. So he he and he devised a measurement yeah. system um, for both weight, like the weight of the animal, um, but also ways <laughs> of 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 categorizing skulls horns antlers tusks those those yeah he parts. made he made the, f um, the first book of measurements of uh, of what we would call uh, trophies because he like you say like he was he was a taxidermist as well and uh, most, the world's most famous taxidermist at the time and it was at this time in the late 1800s early 1900s it was very uh, a very popular um, thing for uh, British hunters to go to Africa to hunt and then they would send their uh, hunting trophies uh, home uh, for a taxidermy with Roland Ward and then he would uh, categorize them as well 
So he, yeah. from from being the taxidermist that received almost uh, all hunting trophies, including when uh, Theodore Roosevelt in 1910 went hunting in Africa <clears throat> for the Smithsonian Museum, every everything was sent back to um, to Roland Ward as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he had a, a good opportunity to write the first uh, record record book. What became the first record book? I mean, it started out as just categorizing, uh, but but then later, of course, it became uh, prestigious to be in that book and be listed at the the top of uh, the Roland Ward measurements. Yeah, because it had it, it. I'm I'm almost wondering. Do you think that is kind of the start? of when this concept of trophy hunting became a competition. There's first place, there's second place, there's third place. We've actually got a measuring system and referees and rules and stuff to determine who's first. And of course, you know, first means you're a winner and second place means you're the, you know, the first loser, you know, that whole aspect of human psychology. Like, do do you think, that's where the, the 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 competitive aspect of trophy hunting started i think so i mean i i guess there has always been uh, back again to paleolithic times i guess back then i can't imagine anything else than if if a hunter was uh, brave and strong enough to kill a very big animal i mean i can imagine that uh, the skull of a saber-toothed tiger or something like that would have been an impressive trophy and that there would be I mean, you can imagine that there would have been competition even back then. Wow, this guy has a saber-toothed tiger skull he, or a saber-toothed lion skull. He must be a, a, a very <laughs> great hunter. But yeah, I think the first record book in, in modern times indicates the start of where size became really uh, competitive. Then, then of, of course, huh. later with other record books with the Boone and Crockett and the CIC and Safari Club International later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There and Pope and Young came yeah. uh, much, much later. Oh, and, and the, actually, there was another aspect about these uh, early trophies that I wanted to mention uh, is that in, in medieval times, I mean, you would have uh, in, uh, in medieval castles, you would also have uh, hunting trophies on the walls. But uh, they had a kind of a different role back then uh, because the hunting trophies back then were not as much to uh, display display personal hunting prowess as they were about uh, displaying uh, rightful nobility ownership of the land. Um, so you have these, right, you have right. these uh, they would be numbered by the, by the years that they have been shot. And then you could see on the walls of these medieval castles that generations after generations of nobilities living in this castle have been shooting these deer on this land. Which So, so, so that's a way of displaying oh, yeah. that because we can trace our hunting history on this land back through these trophies, that proves that we uh, have rightful ownership of uh, and lordship of, of this land. Hmm. Oh wow. wow! Yeah, I do. I do remember reading that. It's so that's almost like the um, the antlers themselves became like a currency almost, or or a uh, uh, a deed, yeah, a deed a is proof a, of ownership a of good land, word. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow! Wow, that's, that's crazy. That's hunting, cool, hunting in that's general really cool. had this role in medieval times when the nobility hunted. I mean, they were 
the, it was not just that it was a pastime uh, for an ability to hunt. It was also that hunting was uh, when when the king rode out into the forest and rode among the the lands where uh, the peasants were not allowed to hunt. He was demonstrating his uh, physical ownership of of the land. So he was not only not only politically and mentally occupying the land. He was also physically occupying the land uh, by hunting in it and 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 not allowing anyone else to hunt in it. Huh, interesting. I had read somewhere, I can't remember which one of my books, but one of the one of the undertones of the French Revolution mm. was is the people wanted access to the king's hunting lands because they needed to feed themselves and basically once they like you know, captured and killed and overthrew the monarchy and stuff like people then flooded over the walls and into the Lord's lands and stuff. And they went rabbit and pheasant hunting and deer and all that kind of stuff. You, so, you probably read um, that in uh, meditations on hunting. Ortega writes about that. That might have been in, in Ortega's book. Yeah, yeah, because book. he yeah, writes that. That, that uh, might have been where it, that, <clears throat> uh, I don't remember the, ex I, have the I have that somewhere here. Because he said, he said something along the lines and he goes, that's how important hunting is to the citizens of a country. It's like they literally like overthrew the king because they wanted access to lands to hunt. So... And, I, and yeah, do you want to hear that quote? And I also I have the, stand I have the one you're talking about. Yeah, right yeah, here. no, go ahead and read it if if, if it is. Yeah, Ortega, yeah. yeah. Uh, he wrote that from all the revolutionary periods in history, there leaps into view the lower classes' fierce hatred for the upper classes because the latter had limited hunting, an indication of the enormous appetite which the lower classes had for the occupation. One of the causes of the French Revolution was the irritation the country people felt because they were not allowed to hunt. And consequently, one of the first privileges which the nobles were obliged to abandon was this one. In all revolutions, the first thing that the people have done was to jump over the fences of the preserves or to tear them down and in the name of social justice pursue the hare and the partridge. And this, after the revolutionary newspapers in their editorials, had for years been abusing the aristocrats for being so frivolous as to spend their time hunting. <laughs> wow yeah no that's um that's pretty cool and and i even understand like that that same sentiment echoes in the history of north america and canada and the united states you know and everybody knows that basically like in the united states the story is is the founding um forefathers of the nation that created the the um the declaration of independence were committing treason against uh great britain by doing mm. that um, and part of the undertones in there is that these colonies were in North America with these bountiful resources, which were claimed for the king. Um, and those, those lands and those animals and those deer and all that sort of stuff were the Lord's animals and just an extension of, of his hunting empire. And the people over here, part of it was, is kind of like, screw that system. It's like, we want to go hunt these things. And, and that, from I understand in history, was also like a small part of, you know, um, why Canada and the United States colonies broke away from from the French and the British. Yeah, so. and that history is, uh, I think, a reason that there seems to be a 
there seems to be a stronger resistance among uh, North American hunters to having any of their hunting freedoms taken away than there is in uh, in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Now, getting back onto just down to the topic of the record books, um, maybe walk us through a little bit of what you talked about, like sort of the 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 purpose and consequences of like these trophy trophy records. Like we talked a little bit about. <clears throat> Um, you know, the, the, the collector mentality, but uh, you, you went into some more aspects. Yeah, I mean, of one of the stated purposes uh, of these trophy hunting record books, especially for the Boone and Crockett book, uh, is that they are, offer uh, important scientific information. And, uh, and this also, this seems to be the case for the Boone and Crockett record book, especially because the Boone and Crockett measuring system is uh, used in various ways in in, uh, in scientific research. Like there has been uh, papers on how to how to use estimates of a Boone and Crockett score to to uh, estimate age ages age groups of uh, of deer and uh, and changes yeah, over time. Yeah, exactly. As well. Yeah, you can yeah. you can use uh, you can use the Boone and Crockett scores to to see. Uh, what sizes are being harvested in various places and and when more information is supplied about the animals of course that gives even more grounds for for good research yeah you know and especially when we know um biologically now that um like big antlers and big horns are tied more nutrition and weather have a greater influence on antler and horn growth than do genetics mm. um, you can have genetics and be predisposed to grow a big set of horns but if your nutrition's poor or the weather's really bad then it's not fully expressed so there could be uh, you know a value of looking at those changes over time even when it comes to things like climate change yeah. so so that that's, so that's a that's a like, okay, well, we'll kind of like, you know, maybe accept that one. But what about consequences? And uh, well, that, that's, uh, well, there, are, I would say that there are a couple of more purposes. Uh, I mean, there's also the purpose from a hunter's perspective, I guess, that you can use trophy, trophy books as kind of a, a guidebook. Um, if you can see information about where certain animals have uh, have been shot. Yeah, where to yeah. where to go hunting? It gets used yeah, yeah, for that. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and then the the stated the stated one of the other stated purposes of many of these record books is uh, that they are meant to uh, honor honor the animals. Um, so, mm. but I think that's a that you pose the question: Do record books honor animals or yeah, hunters? Yeah, and and and. My answer there, uh, in my analysis, is that record books mostly are about uh, honoring uh, hunters and not too much about honoring animals. I think the the idea of honoring animals is kind of nonsensical. I mean, it's a nonsensical subject to an animal to be honored in any way, and then and then you take this one parameter, like uh, you take the size of its, uh, say, antlers or or whatever trophy it is and then reduce that to a score and then list it in a book and then say that that's honoring the animal. I think that's, that's a stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a human yeah. value, you know, that, that, uh, 
and and I can appreciate the animals don't give a shit about about that. They're just <laughs> I'm dead. You know, it's kind of like here's all the great athletes and all the great sports, and each time they attain these records, like we killed them and then we ranked them. So it's sort of like, well, the athlete <laughs> would be like, hey, I'd rather be alive out there still leading the scoring championship than to be recognized as the all-time point getter in a single yeah. game. Yeah, <laughs> and then you and and then you have these lists of uh, of hunters that are mentioned by name, and then animals that are purely listed by uh, a number so so who are you really honoring are you honoring the the hunter that is identified exactly by his own name uh who then you know uh, unless it's a very common name you i mean you know what hunter that refers to or are you animal i mean a number is just a number it's not an indicator of what what animal that was in any way so i mean if mm -hmm. If record books are not uh, about honoring hunters, then why do we still have the names of hunters in the record books? I mean, they. Yeah. I was just gonna it's say, just, take the take the names you, out and just have exactly, the you, white-tailed deer scored one seventy. Yeah, you would from get Alberta. exactly the same scientific information and the, exactly the same honoring of the deer by leaving out the names of the hunters from the record books. Yeah. yeah, but then who would you give the big belt buckle to? <laughs> yeah. That's the question. Huh? Deer doesn't deer doesn't need the belt buckle. Um yeah, and I mean and I and I think lots of people are familiar with this and this is a human trait. This isn't I don't think exclusive to hunting. You create a competition, you create a ranking system where in this case it's the hunters that are ranked you know, mm, yeah, that that person shot the biggest white-tailed buck in North America, and everybody knows who he is, where he's mm. from, uh, all these sorts of accolades, and you know, big companies like Cabela's buys the deer and creates replicas of it, and you get exclusive rights to your story by Outdoor Life magazine, you know, or, or whatever. Like, there's there's all that stuff that goes at it. Um, so there becomes incentives to also be bestowed all of those things to yeah shoot. exactly and that's that's one of the like you mentioned the, that's one and of that's the consequences nature. of these uh, record books is that they i think they lead to some and and i've read that they lead to some very poor behavior on behalf of hunters and one one good indication of this is that if you look into the boone and crockett website they uh, they specifically write they have a, a long list of of things that that uh, that are unacceptable for uh, for trophies to be entered into the Boone and Crockett record book and that includes like a, a score shopping where you have gone to have your uh, trophy measured at at different places to in, to see where you can get the highest score and it in, and it includes. <laughs> um, uh, the modification of uh, antlers. I mean, uh, actually, there have been cases where people make f entirely fake antlers, or you remove uh, antlers from one skull and put it onto another skull. Or, or um, uh, there was one one case where someone got caught uh, removing uh, a long dead pair of antlers and from from a skull and then putting in them onto a, a trophy photo uh, where where they were sitting with uh, sitting with the animal and then putting the antlers of the dead deer on top of the 
of of the animal in the photo right, to make right, it look yeah, like yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's all <clears throat> kinds of, and then it leads to the trophy poaching as well. I mean, you've had, in the in the states you've had uh, cases where where poachers have have been caught um, poaching and then and then have simply stated that that uh, they simply wanted a a record deer. They they were trying to get their name in in a record book, and that was the only reason they had for poaching. Yeah, like I remember um, following this stuff when I was younger, but um, <clears throat> like the world record pronghorn antelope, you know, from North America was, I believe, ranked as number one or number two or whatever in the world for like almost 100 years. And they started to discover all types of the fraud things when x-ray technology be kind of came available and they Boone and Crockett started x-raying some of these old historical skulls mm. and the horns on the pronghorn were popped off of the, the skull core, um, raised up and then pinned into place and then the the base of the, the horn was remodeled out so they lifted them up to get a longer score. There were ones where the skull had been split and wedged to open up the, the, the span, the tip to tip span. I remember, <clears throat> I think the world record doll sheep <clears throat> was, I re can't remember if this was right, it was, uh, it was in the record books as being shot in the Brooks Range in Alaska, <clears throat> and it turned out, <clears throat> excuse me, it was shot in the Yukon in Canada in one of the national parks because it was, uh, it had a biologist had a, an electronic code pin about the size of a needle, like sewing needle, inserted in that they could read with a code reader. Um, so they knew they figured they flew out, they knew this big ram was there and they did a covert operation like in a super cub aircraft or whatever, flew, landed on the plateau, shot the ram and took it back and said they got it uh -huh. in Alaska. So. Those stories yeah. have been, you know, around. They're they're real. People do cheat. People cheat on their taxes. People cheat, you know, everything. They, people, steal toilet paper from public washrooms. Like like it's just that's that's a human yeah, thing. Yeah. And 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 but in this case, and this is and so this is uh, this is with where the trophies are scored, where the different kinds of cheating happens at the top end of trophies. But then you have another uh, problematic aspects of these hunting awards that don't reward um, the biggest trophies, but simply are, um, are reward collections of trophies. Like for example, the Grand Slams, like the Grand Slam of of North American sheep, which which doesn't yeah. care about how big these sheep were. So one of the consequences there can be that uh, sheep are shot that are way too young and had many good years ahead of them and weren't even near their prime, but you still get your grand slam and that's what matters. Yep, yep, there's definitely uh, definitely that. Um, you know, being the, the collection thing, there's, yeah, there's the world slam of sheep, there's the turkey slam, there's to get, you know, the the North American slam, which is every large game animal from North America. And yeah, and, and so like you're saying, those are not score driven. Yeah, yeah. They're just and the big five in Africa. Driven. They're yeah. like, yep. Yeah. It doesn't matter how yeah, big yeah. the big five are. It just needs to be one of those, those species and small big five. Yeah, you get, it's not good enough. <laughs> yeah. 
small and cheap yeah. big five. Um, now, one of the uh, the topics I also found uh, super fascinating was you kind of got into talking about anthropomorphism and viralism, um, yeah. and 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 so anthropomorphism is like sort of how people either assign human qualities to certain animals and then have empathy for them or you have empathy for animals that exhibit qualities that are kind of like can also be seen as being like human-like qualities and that that is an undertone or or, or an underlying thing that drives this um, conflict in in trophy hunting and and opposition to it so maybe yeah i think one of the one of the best recent examples of this is if you have uh, followed on twitter the the british alpaca thing oh yeah yeah the geronimo i mean that that's one of the rest 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 that's one of the best examples of uh, anthropomorphism i think because you have this very cute looking animal it's it has all these characteristics that uh, make people care about animals it has uh, it's it's very furry it has uh, big brown cute eyes it uh, and then it has then it has the personal story it has a name i mean having a name is very important uh, and then it has this personal uh, narrative of uh, peril and there's uh, clear heroes and there's clear villains uh, and and then it's it's a it's big and it's a mammal um there are all sorts of, of things that are indeed in that are uh, important to as to which animals that we come to care personally about and which uh, that we don't care about and uh while i mean just comparing the how much attention uh, CISO gets and how much this uh, alpaca Geronimo gets to how many uh, animals are killed uh, in uh, the factory farming livestock industry, which which don't count because we just consider those uh, meat animals. And um, I mean, of, of course, there's a lot of people who care about those too. There's a lot of people who campaign to end factory farming and that kind of thing. But most people, or uh, many people who campaign to not kill Geronimo are people who are perfectly content to eat uh, meat that they buy in the supermarket and don't don't have a second thought about it. Um, So I think that's just one of the best recent examples of of anthropomorphism causing us to care about some animals and, and not care about others. And Right, and in trophy right. hunting, uh, it just so happens that a lot of the stereotypically trophy hunted animals, uh, the ones that cause all the outrage, are very anthropomorphized animals. Like you have the lions. Lions are one of the most uh, iconized uh, animals in the world, probably the most iconized animal in the world. You And you have cartoons, you have it in The Lion King, you know it from, you know it from Disney, you know it from cartoons, and it has... It's it's such an impressive and such an impressively anthropomorphized animal that 
whenever something happens to a lion, it's just much worse than whenever something happens to just a regular plains game like an antelope or a kudu or something like that in Africa or a white-tailed deer or an elk. Because all of those, uh, all the all the deer kind of, of uh, animals, we are used to associating them uh, to some extent with meat. I mean, not to the same extent as uh, as cows and pigs and and sheep and chickens, but we do know and accept that uh, deer are for eating and and deer are being eaten and and that uh, hunters who hunt deer are people. Hunt, are hunters that we consider meat hunters, whereas someone who hunts yeah. a lion or a giraffe or a rhino, uh, we don't. E- even though, even if the, the meat is usually eaten as well, uh, maybe not by the hunter but by local communities, we don't consider that uh, meat hunting because we don't see those as uh, meat animals. Well, d- Deer hunters in North America still get called Bambi killers. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <clears throat> Thank, thanks, thanks to Walt. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, and and you talked about one of the one of the sort of defining characteristics of sort of the social outrage over trophy hunting with the certain species is when when there's a name attached to to species or or to an individual like Cecil or or to to a recognizable um animal that everybody knew had had a name like Dumbo right like it it could be any one of a hundred elephants but if you call each one of those elephants that a trophy hunter took as Dumbo everybody goes back and remembers little Dumbo and his big ears and you know and and his mom and you know and all that kind of stuff so it it creates that that anthropomorphized like oh you shot Dumbo you shot yeah and uh, and giving an animal a name it's also not only does it serve to individualize the animal it makes us see it as an individual and not just uh, a specimen of a species but it also the name interacts favorably with social media because uh, because Cecil was given the name Cecil then the hashtag uh, Cecil the Lion and uh, tweets and uh, on all kinds of social media information about the Cecil the Lion could spread but if the lion if if Cecil didn't have a name it would just be Lion Uh, so how are you gonna how are you gonna search for that on social media you're just Lion killed or (laughs) it doesn't you you can't you can't go viral unless there's uh, an individual name so uh, didn't yeah didn't you talk about that as well as it was like after the cecil align thing about a year later like one of cecil's um like the the brother to him or whatever in the same area uh, was shot so, but it by a hunter um but he didn't have a name or something like that and nobody cared uh no this was in uh this was what? uh this was when i was uh, writing about um Zeus. I was uh, describing the situation of the giraffe called Marius being killed in uh, Sioux in Denmark. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, in, in, and because yeah, right, this yeah. very cute Marius giraffe, uh, it had all the characteristics that uh, make uh, that that uh, people make people anthropomorphize with animals and that cause animals to go viral. So Marius went went viral, and it was a huge outrage that uh, that uh, Marius was killed. 
and uh, it, it caused uh, death threats to the um, uh, this, this was in Copenhagen Zoo so it called death threats to the staff and the scientific director of the zoo and everything um, it, it was a huge scandal I like it was uh, the size of the Cecil scandal almost um, but but uh, but then like uh, a week or two le- or sometime after I don't know how long it was then uh, the same zoo uh, kills a couple of lions and uh, there's not a peep about it because these lions uh, didn't have uh, names and then that's that's one of the Marys didn't actually have a name either it was, it was a nickname that was accidentally heard by some uh, some um, zoo visitors and then it spread by accident because they don't purposely give their animals names but yeah so that's definitely a uh, a tactic that, that Annie hunters have picked up on <laughs> is that when they anthropomorphize and give um, things yeah. names, then it increases the level of empathy and attention um, worldwide. They can make these things go viral. Here in British Columbia, a couple of years ago, we had the one of this wolf on Vancouver Island, and its name was Dakaya or something like that. And, um, you know, it's so- sort of a Cecil the Lion type thing. It had this you know, this very coastal, you know, sort of name and stuff to it. But um, that that seems to, definitely seems to be a, a tactic. Um, you know, you see see names being attributed to, um, you know, to animals uh, or even the imagery and stuff like that. You know, if you're like against the bear hunt, you know, then you use imagery of bears like waving, yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, just caught in a pose that looked like they're waving or or hunters might only be interested in, har- you know, in taking large old males, but they show like a picture of uh, like a female with its cobs and call it like mom and her children or, you know, those sorts of things. And I think that's, they're playing into that mm. same psychology. Yeah, yeah. And of course they're using the the trophies, uh, the, trophy, the trophy photos uh, are being used against uh, the against hunters as well i mean the the, the hunters yeah. are very kind to provide the best weapon there is against them <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh yeah it's like might as well make cash donations yeah. to PETA. um some of this some of the stuff that uh that pe- people post saying well i have a right to do it it's like well, yeah i uh, guess you do you have a right to every right you now, want to destroy your own uh, favorite activity. Yeah, you, you have a right, but you also have a responsibility um, to the rest of us. Now, another very super interesting part of your thesis, I kind of like um, to dig dig into this a little bit too, is the morality, the the ethical and morality aspect of of trophy hunting, and you you kind of broke some things down into kind of like what the basic moral dilemmas uh, were. You talked about, um, you know, the classic sort of disputes against a couple of these things. I'll get you to explain them, like um, deontology and consequentialism Mm -hmm. um, sort of being, and virtue ethics uh, and stuff as being kind of the, the underlying moral ethical issues that, that's creating this divide. So yeah. So, so these w- walk us, walk us. These three that. are the three uh, major schools of um, 
of like a normative ethics uh, you you say that you have the deontology is uh, what we also call like rights-based ethics so that is uh, that's the idea that um, humans and when and then also um, by extension to some people animals have certain rights and then we are not allowed to uh, infringe on, on those rights and any action that infringes on those uh, rights uh, is wrong um, regardless of the outcome of those actions. So that's the ontology. And then you have the consequentialism, which as the word says, uh, indicates is where consequences are important, that uh, it's okay to uh, shoot an animal if uh, the consequences uh, of this action uh, the, if the positive uh, consequences of this action outweigh the negative consequences, and uh, and then okay. you have um, it, it generally, it's like it's like the uh, idea that if uh, if an action causes more total happiness than more total uh, misery, that's the, the idea of utilitarianism. Uh, th that's yeah, that's consequentialism. Then it's then it's right. Okay. Um, so, so we people will probably be familiar with this one in the context of trophy hunting. Like, there's some African countries where their elephant populations are just like exploding, yeah. and they know that the elephant population can't be sustained, you know, on the available land. So the biologists will go, we need to get rid of 200 elephants, and so they want the maximum from that. So they sell those to trophy hunters the whole local community thing or whatever um and they kill 200 animals to save 800 animals as opposed to like you know 800 animals all dying of starvation kind yeah. of thing and that's is is that an example of like the argument of consequentialism yeah. it's sort of like a little it, bit of killing because of this exactly greater, that you prevent okay. uh, greater harm uh, not just to the uh, I mean, in this scenario, also to the animals, but then uh, also uh, taking into consideration uh, the, the meat that uh, this uh, animal supplies to people and uh, the income that uh, local communities will, will get from this uh, hunt. And uh, yeah, these are all factors that uh, weigh in and uh, can make it either a, uh, a right action or a wrong action based on the uh, consequences. So, so th those are like those two things, because you could have somebody that comes along and say, well, like, no, that's ethically wrong, because those elephants that you say are marked to cull to save the other ones, they have rights, like they, you know, leave them all alone kind of thing. So, so this is where some yeah. of these... Like and this is just like a this is like just like a fundamental conflict that can't really be solved because they can't you can't find a compromise between uh, doing uh, or you can't at least you can't always find a compromise between doing what's uh, best uh, in terms of consequences and then doing what's uh, respects the rights of an individual not in, not in okay. not in conservation okay. and and most uh, most conservationists okay. uh, are of of course. Um, consequentialists and work uh, based on consequentialism because uh, conservation cannot really function otherwise um, and then there's the then there's the third uh, ethical uh, paradigm uh, paradigm of moral ethics uh, which is um, of normative ethics which is uh, vir virtue ethics um, which is an idea that goes back to Aristotle where the 
what is right and wrong is based not on the consequences or on the rights or of individuals or duties to individuals, but it's based on um, moral character. It's based on being a good person. And uh, so my uh, thesis in my thesis, my uh, argument is that what uh, anti-hunters actually seem to oppose most is not as much the the killing of uh, of animals as it is the trophy hunting persons i mean it's it's an objection more to trophy hunters than it is an objection to trophy hunting because when you when you look right. at reactions to to trophy hunting almost all of it is uh, is centered on what a horrible person uh, trophy trophy hunter must, trophy hunters must be and uh, then it, it, it comes from uh, the idea of virtue ethics that uh, moral, moral people commit moral actions and immoral people commit immoral actions. Uh, if you're a virtuous uh, person, then, then, then you are expected uh, to commit virtuous acts. And if you are a vicious person, then you are uh, expected to co co commit vicious acts. And uh, I think there's a, a broad assumption that um, among these people who really hate trophy hunting, that trophy hunters are vicious people and, uh, and therefore anything that they do, regardless of any positive consequences it might have, is unacceptable because we, we cannot abide the whims of uh, vicious people. So I think that... Right. Because cause you you sort of explain like you you had actually like cataloged um, like these these social outrage responses to tr you know trophy hunting pictures um, and yeah. and like you said your findings seem to be a tremendous amount of them was um, aimed at the person yeah and then yeah. and then sort of below that would be like this sorrow for the animal having been killed but the weight of it was like horrible person and all these nasty names and people wanting nasty things to happen to them and and you use the example of like there's this well you know anybody that killed a uh, a little antelope like that that's smaller than than a cat um ought to be this type of a mm. person in order to kill an antelope that small and that is that an example of like where the person is is assuming or judging like this person whether their act was moral or immoral or if they were a virtuous person yeah exactly you 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 know, you, you uh, only an immoral person would do something yeah, like that exactly is, yeah and like you said i, I made my okay. own uh, little uh, small uh, yeah, social media study where i i looked at five uh, trophy hunting photos and then analyzed the first 50 comments to to each of these five so 200 just 250 comments in total and uh, and and then i analyzed for for analyzed looked at uh, how much of the content is uh, directed towards the hunter like uh, the wrongness of the hunter and how much of it is directed towards the wrongness of the act of killing or the or to, towards just the animal in the photo and uh, what i found was that out of the 250 comments i analyzed uh, 136 comments were pertaining to the hunter and only 35 were pertaining to the animal or the act of killing the animal 
Um, I mean, it's, this is just a very small study, but it just gives some indication that that uh, on social media, at least, it's it seems to be more uh, a, a hatred of hunters that fuels the anti-trophy hunting rhetoric than a, a uh, than a hatred of hunting. Yeah, no, isn't that is a super super interesting and and i think that that underlies um you know a large segment of the hunting community that are that are working to improve um you know like the image and and how hunters are perceived because social media is a platform that every everybody uses not not trying to you know, manip some people are manipulating it, like they're they're playing the game some some hunters, but they're definitely um, you know, trying to overcome um those those negative connotations, the negative virtue oh that person, you know, got a thrill from killing. And so like hunters are going, No, we don't get a thrill from killing. So they're yeah. trying to compensate and 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 overcome that because those are the types of things like you're seeing in your comments as you're going, well, the person must be psycho. They must be mentally deranged and, um, you know, bloodlust and, you know, and all these sorts of yeah. things. And, and I think those, those efforts are for, uh, those are f for the benefit of uh, the moderates, uh, because the people who write these things on social media, oh, this is a psycho, he should be killed, oh, I wish the hunters had guns, or uh, all those things. I don't think that these are generally people who are open to understanding why most hunters actually hunt. They will always assume mm -hmm. the worst possible things, I think. But but then there's, yeah. then there's a whole much bigger uh, group of people in the middle who uh, are very open to reason, I think. Yeah, I'm open to reason, but they probably get swayed by what appears to be the dominant <laughs> argument, you know, that's being put out there as as well. Yeah. So now is that what um, you talked about this? Uh, what was it called? The worst motive fallacy. And and is mm. is that um, is is that attributed to like the anti hunters? would react to let's say a trophy hunting picture or you know the the hunting of lions or something like that and then assume the worst possible yeah. motive yeah exa exactly and then they run with that is is that what that is yeah yeah i would say so and and uh, and these um <coughs> worst possible motives and like strong strong emotions associated with um strong uh, emotions associated with seeing for example a, a trophy hunting uh, photo uh, or hearing a story about a, a trophy hunt allows these things to um, go viral more easily so that so whenever these strong emotions occur uh, they spread more easily because like there's also been some um, some studies of what makes uh, what makes news go viral and uh, what and some of the dominant factors there for making news go viral was that it has to be uh, 
Uh, let's see if I remember it correctly, but it's something like it has to be very hot and strong emotions rather than just uh, just something that's um, interesting or uh, anything that makes you feel rage will uh, cause you to retweet it very easily. So whenever the so whenever rage is oh, okay. felt, then the the viral ability uh, potential is is amplified. So that that's the that's the scenario like um um uh hunter uh kills lion in Africa mm. versus um wealthy white dentist slaughters lion that takes 72 hours yeah. to die yeah. and it's like rage versus oh god another lion being killed and then like that's that seems to be the game that you're talking about that pe people hit on those things that, that immediately like redline somebody's emotions and then they they read yeah and it. and uh, and then you, by by saying like uh white wealthy uh red, yeah the, these words are also indicative of uh, another issue that i write about which which is that trophy hunting is very closely associated with uh, what we call privilege so these uh, american trophy hunters they are very they are almost always or they are usually male and they are usually white almost always white and they are um, usually rich because hun hunting like for example in africa is is very um, very expensive. expensive and uh, and they are yeah. also often uh, uh, conservatives with uh, all the values and opinions that that, uh, that generally follow from that and so the the dislike of trophy hunters becomes an expression i think very often not only of a dislike of trophy hunting and of trophy hunters but a dislike of all of the things that these people these trophy hunters represent it becomes a clash between uh, rich and poor it becomes a, a clash between uh, races, white and other races, it becomes a clash between male and female, and a clash between uh, s straight and uh, and uh, uh, not straight or and, and not uh, not cisgender. Or all these kinds of uh, yeah, all these yeah. kinds of conflicts are inherent inherent in the trophy hunting conflict as well. I think, and since since anti hunters uh, demographically tend to be the opposite of trophy hunters on almost every count. I mean, they are often liberal, they are often female, they are uh, often uh, people of color. It is just, yeah, as you can see, it is just, a, uh, I think the conflict uh, finds its expression in a conflict about trophy hunting, but very often it's a conflict about many underlying issues. Right, mm. right. Yeah, I had heard that about like the Cecil Lyon thing before. It was sort of written that what the world was objecting to was was um, basically like wealthy Americans. Yeah, you know, and and not so much that a lion died, um, but it, but it was it was like you said that that became that became the central. Yeah, thing. and and then of course there's there's the very obvious strong uh, colonialist uh, over uh, undertones of uh, a rich white American going to a poor area in Africa and exploiting their wildlife and and yeah, 
but but then of course that I mean that's the very simplistic uh, colonial aspect. I mean there's also the other there's also a colonial aspect to the opposite of of, uh, of that view, which which is that uh, by saying that this should not be allowed, then you are kind of uh, ignoring the voice of. Uh, African local communities who may not want this trophy hunting to stop and who may rely on this trophy hunting as a business. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that's that that's that whole argument where it's like the rest of the world is sticking their nose into Africa's yeah. business, saying we want to ban trophy hunting because we disagree yeah. with it on a Western moral ethical exactly. perspective, and we don't care that you know it prevents your crops from being trampled and your kids from being killed when they're going to school and your and your trackers are paid and schools are built and um we want to decide for you and we're doing it by airplane airline companies having bans on trophy imports and all this sort of stuff and so you're saying that's a form of colonialism. yeah yeah exactly i mean it's it's often the, yeah, these, these anti-hunting or animal rights activists who sit very safely in in a city in somewhere in north america or in britain or something and uh, and do not really have any concept of uh, of the challenges of actually living with hmm. very dangerous uh, wildlife and then say that oh we think that we we like the idea of having lions in the world so you are not allowed to kill uh, the lions i mean that's 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 it's very it's quite easy to have that view when you are sitting safely in, a, in an apartment in london because someone else has uh, killed all the dangerous wildlife on your behalf long ago so 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 you can live <laughs> <Yeah>. safely but uh, <laughs> yeah if you are living in constant danger of lions and uh, elephants and uh, other animals, then it's it's not as easy to have this uh, view that oh uh, they have inherent value we should protect them and yeah if you have very I mean they these people often have very little to begin with and then if they their crops get trampled by an elephant or their uh, only livestock gets eaten by a lion, it's hard to just tell them that oh. Lions are beautiful and majestic, and they have inherent value. Leave them alone. Yeah, yeah. So I think that there's there's a lot the... of. I mean, sure that you can easily say that it's colonialist for rich Americans to go and exploit Africa's wildlife, but it's also there's also a lot of neo-colonialism in 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 saying that uh, we should we should decide what Africa can and can't do with their wildlife, which in many yeah. which they are much more uh, successful in conserving than than most western countries are yeah yeah Un under under the ways the ways they they do it with the hunting concessions and stuff and uh anti poaching op you know operations and stuff so yeah that's um that's an interesting way way to look at it now i i know you didn't you didn't write this in your thesis this is another I, I want to see what your thoughts are on this kind of like the the undertones in the this this debate about you know the the controversy around trophy hunting is um, I think Joe Rogan said this on one of his podcasts. He says the number one recreation in society today is social outrage, 
people just are looking for something to just absolutely unleash on um, at this level of rage. Um, you know, we saw it with, in cities with driving, you know, like road rage and, and then social media kind of allowed people to do it. Like, you know, is, is that an aspect um, that people want to be outraged about something? Like there's just this need and trophy hunting seems to be a thing that is, 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 a, is an outlet for people just wanting to be outraged about something <laughs> i definitely think maybe it's better than politics yeah i definitely think that there's uh there's some truth to, to that i i wouldn't say that i that i uh, i don't know enough about that to speculate on really on what has caused yeah. this change if there really is a change i mean yeah, maybe yeah. maybe we've always been like that but uh, the increasing importance of social media just makes it more and more obvious that we are like this um, yeah, yeah, and a am amplifies. Yeah. And, uh, and like I know, said, uh, that, social that, media yeah. amplifies outrage much more than uh, than it amplifies facts New and and news. Um, yeah, anything, exactly, anything that exactly. anything that generates clicks, which outrage does, gets picked up by uh, algorithms and gets promoted and and. And that's why uh, also misinformation is often amplified more than uh, than factual information because misinformation is often more interesting. So there's there's all and kinds of people are making yeah money there's off of it. And, and and not just on social media. I mean uh, n now that uh, newspapers are all online and they re then they rely on uh, clicks for their uh, incomes. Then clickbait is the way that you you generate. Um, that you generate income so well, this, it's this topic definitely seems to to be the one that comes up on a slow news day to create click clicks it's like well let's yeah. pull out a trophy exactly, hunting story yeah. and fill in the, the 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 gap before the election so i don't think necessarily that people have changed i think that it's it's a me the media uh picture that has changed yeah no for sure um wow man um this is an amazing conversation uh there's you know i i'm not sh if this is the iceberg scenario i think we touched on the tip of the iceberg yeah you know, um as far as the the depth of of what's what's in your thesis in this this story in this book that's going to come out yeah but you know there were me, many more uh, one of the there were many more notes oh here so for, many topics Oh man, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll save that eight for eight-hour podcast, man. <laughs> yeah, part one, part yeah. two, chapter one, chapter two, just just like your Let's thesis. Um, but you know, one of the biggest things I think that a uh, couple things that stuck with me is the history of some of these concepts and how far this goes back in human society. Um, like that struck me like a freight train like even what you said about like a, the euro mount being 6500 mm -hmm. years old in a, a you know in a home and um the 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 uh you know archaeological sites having evidence of like trophies like things parts of animals that were clearly for display yeah. purposes I don't, I don't know if you would call um, them you know, trophies back. but uh, but at least uh, animal parts made into decorations yeah yeah, yeah. amulets or like like 
but the concept is it's mm. a part that didn't serve a um it didn't keep me warm safe or fed me it had some other type of yeah. meaning to it had to the memento or display qualities yeah yeah something mm -hmm. um whether it was social status or social signaling or you know or like whatever you said about the you know the the um prowess that might be associated with having a big saber tooth lion yeah. skull or tooth or something like that like like so the 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 roots of some of this stuff even like the roots of the word meaning trophy like how far back you trace some of that stuff in human culture um was amazing and I, and I thank you for for doing so much work and you know and pulling that together that's that's super fascinating thank you so much. and then the other end of it that I think that that really really struck a chord with me and and you and I think you highlighted this was that the the heart of this trophy hunting hunting um anti-hunting debate seems to center more around a dislike or disdain for the hunters and their perceived behaviors virtues and 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 ethics as opposed to the fact of an animal dying mm. um that that was really profound for me as well because that is something that can be changed mm. i think so if if it's real then that needs to be like addressed society will address that um or if it's simply coming across wrong then the agent that's delivering the message is screwing up right like the the, the punchline was not funny um so you need to go back to your writers and you know and refigure out that society's interpreting these things wrong so um those those are those are great great aspects of your thesis i look forward to the book thank you yeah and you know like i said there is oh man there was stuff you got into stuff like uh um the different stereotypes um the different themes around hunting like the the hunting slash sex themes you know <laughs> that you're you know yeah. that yours you know like you know i hunt for big rocks or whatever like you you got into like the, stuff like that bumper stickers, yeah. About, um yeah, the bumper sticker stuff, the, uh, you know, I love my wife, but I can't wait for hunting season, like kind of that, that whole connotation of like hunting is a way of getting away from, you know, your your wife or your family and like all the slogans that get used mm. in, in hunting and stuff like that. Um, you got into like uh, lengthy conversations about like fair chase, uh, which is which is hugely interesting to a lot, you know, a lot of people. Mm. And then you kind of talk about, uh, like, you know, more, more modern stuff like changes because of COVID and, you know, and, and, and that with hunting. And, and like I said, I, I think we only touched the tip of the iceberg in, in what you've created for, for all of us in your, in your work. Thanks. This, this was cool. great. I was Any, very happy uh, to be here. Oh man, I, I loved it. Awesome. I loved it. It was great. Awesome. You did, you're an awesome, did an awesome mm. job. Is there, uh, is, is there one big thing like you're going, Oh man, I wish you would have got out like this. No, I can't think of anything you, right you, now. You, no. you can, 
<laughs> no? Okay. Well, you can write me afterwards, and then we'll, like, add it <laughs> okay. plan, plan another to one. the podcast. Sure. <laughs> no, uh, but we would love to have you back on. Like yeah, maybe we'll, absolutely. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, cr- create a different forum and some new things and, and uh, explore these. Uh, I love, you know, the whole learning about ethics and morality and yeah i like to um i've kind of inhabited this uh social uh or this this niche on on twitter where i spend a lot of my time now where most of the people that i interact with are conservation scientists or ecologists and biologists but then i i so I'm like a, a social scientist by by training, and then also this uh, philosophy aspect. So, I, but but then take that way into the different uh, ecology, and then trying to trying to learn ecology now and biology and and stuff on on top of that, and then come with with some offer some different perspectives that that uh, the ecologists and biologists don't have, and I think that. Hunting yeah. is uh, is one of the most important things to to write and talk about because there's so much that's interesting both from a uh, scientific perspective with with management and biology and but also so much of interest in in terms of uh, ethics. Yeah, ab- absolutely, totally. and you know, and social and defining you know, cultures and mm. even the economics of it and stuff like you stated that at the very beginning, it's like, it's just this, you don't consider yourself a philosopher because it's, it's such a multifaceted, uh, you know, subject hunting and trophy hunting and, and, uh, you know, that's another aspect we didn't really dive into, but you did a really good job kind of like painting very different pictures of like trophy hunting, um, in Africa versus elsewhere in the world, Europe being even different and North America being different. Yeah. And, uh, those were super fascinating. Yeah, and, and something that we maybe we can own. discuss later is, is like the difference of, uh, of managing in the West where we manage uh, resources that are often overabundant as compared to in Africa where you manage uh, and conserve resources that are scarce. I mean, there's a big... There's a big difference between hunting something that you need need to hunt in order to keep the population down and then hunting something that you allow a very limited amount of hunting in order to protect the rest so that you can keep the population up. There's uh, some interesting dynamics there. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, it is. We saw yeah. that with the whole rhino controversy a number of years ago, right? It was the, the endangered black rhino where the hunter yeah. got the was paying to go oh, take the, final, the one big yeah. bull that was like killing the other remaining bulls because he was so yeah black black, black rhinos are probably one of the best examples of manning managing something with hunting that is extremely scarce where you paid it all right we, we have maybe we have 20 rhinos and then we'll allow someone to shoot yeah. two so that our 20 can turn into 25 or something <laughs> it's a very different scale yeah. than otherwise Otherwise, if they don't kill the two, those two bulls have been killing other rival bulls, and we might end up losing more. Yeah, like that or, was, or that we was need the bull. we need the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars from from killing one rhino uh, in order to protect the remaining uh, rhinos. Yeah, I mean this this is this is carrying on, but that whole story about the black rhino hunt—the original hunter that bought that hunt. 
for that one bull that the biologists wanted taken out of that herd because he was like killing and injuring the other breeding mm. bulls. Um, I think originally that's that hunt sold for a million or two yeah, million. Yeah, that, that may be, yeah. yeah. And then then the shit hit the fan. Um, this person was getting the death threats in that and they said, Screw it, I don't want the hunt. And they re-auctioned it off for a quarter of a million. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so yeah I did hear, hear about this. Conservancy yeah. lost. Quite yeah, ironic, like actually. Got, that, like... Yeah, then that it's the opposition <laughs> to the hunting, which which ends up not preventing the hunt, but just makes the hunt less beneficial <laughs> in the end. Yeah. 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 So that that was a whole other story in itself. But, um, man, Nikolai, thanks so much for Thank coming Thank you so on. much for inviting me. Um, uh, St stick around afterwards, um, but uh, Curtis is going to close us out here. Yeah, uh, we would like to thank Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook for being the title sponsor of the Hunter Conservationist podcast now. We are very excited and stoked to be working with those guys, and we're very excited that they love what we're doing and they're helping us promote that. So next time you're in Cranbrook, need tires, need a service, you want to check out a new Toyota truck, stop down to Alpine Toyota and uh, chat with those guys. Like we said, they're huge supporters of conservation and Ducks Unlimited especially. Everybody loves ducks. Duck season is pretty much pretty Upon much us. going now. Yeah, it's a little bit longer and they'll be flying around. So yeah, thanks again to Alpine Toyota. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, thanks, Alpine. And um, just another update. Uh, so we have the new uh, Hunters Underground podcast. Uh, if you're interested in starting to follow us there, you can find us on patron.com, the Hunter Conservationist podcast, and sign up for five dollars a month and we'll start to provide you with some more um podcasts with curtis and i just kind of talking about all types of different things than what we talk about on the round canada podcast or the hunter conservationist podcast here and um want you to submit us ideas and things that you want to hear us um talk about frankly or whatever or analyze or whatever that's the hunters underground podcast on patreon so uh, head over there and start to follow us on that new podcast. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we will uh, see you in the next episode.